I'm Rachel Grimm, and welcome to the podcast with all your mind. I'm here to help us understand the Bible with cultural and historical context, linguistic info, and other cool stuff. Enjoy. In 1054 AD, a guy walked up the aisle of the Hagia Sophia, walked up to the altar, and excommunicated the Patriarch of Constantinople. In response, the Patriarch of Constantinople excommunicated a Pope and the whole Western Church. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast with all your mind, and this is Rachel, (laughs) and welcome. We're starting with a random fact, and we're going to work backwards, because today we're working backwards from our present-day reality to see why it is that way and what is going on in the Christian church. All right. So welcome. <laughs> A random start to our, our podcast today. But uh, today we're going to talk about a lot of history. And I, I heard a collective groan there from all of you people that don't like history too much. But don't worry, that's why you have me. I'm here to make this stuff more reasonable, more tangible, more attainable. And so that we'll actually learn about it instead of knowing that there was this place called the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages and the Medieval Period. But what happened in there, nobody knows, right? (laughs) That's what it often feels like. We have information that is really helpful to understanding the Christian church, how it got to be the way it is today. And so in relation to that, what kind of Bibles there are in the world and how they got to be that way. And why do we have so many different kinds? Why are there different branches of Christianity in the world? How do they use their Bibles? Who has one? And what's the difference between the Catholic and Orthodox churches? Why do they exist in the first place? Is it basically the same thing, but in different countries? That's what we're here to talk about, okay? So what I just told you about in 1054 AD was how the Church of the East and the West finally had a split that severed them to this present day, that they don't consider themselves the same church. So we're going to work backwards. We're going to start at the beginning and work back up to that point. And then we're going to talk about what are the differences between the Orthodox Church, and by Orthodox, we're talking about Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Serbian Orthodox, a lot of Russian-speaking countries, or what you call Slavic countries, we pretty much refer to that as Eastern Orthodoxy. Okay, so we're going to talk about the differences between the Catholic Church and Orthodox churches. So here's the hard part. To understand the schism, and we'll talk about that word, of the church, you need to know the history of Christianity and the Roman Empire. And that's pretty hard because it has a long history and it goes through a time period that most of us never studied in school and don't really care about, to be honest, unless you're my husband. He likes ancient history and medieval history isn't too far off from that. Okay, so you know from the Bible, from the New Testament, that Rome was the empire that had charge of the whole Mediterranean area. At the time of Jesus, right? If you ask, okay, who crucified Jesus? Well, you would say, well, the Romans and the Jews, right? 
we know that the Romans had a major role in the New Testament era. Well, that Roman influence and control continued on and carried on having an influence on Christianity and Christianity having an influence on it for a very, very, very long time. And some of you might know some of this history um, because you know Catholic history maybe. So after the time of Jesus, we have various stories about different people within the early Christian church being involved with the Roman Empire, such as Paul. He traveled around to different cities. And if I say these cities, you might recognize them from the New Testament, but maybe not from history or from geography. So Paul, and let's mention the letters that he wrote to different places in the New Testament, right? Ephesians, which is the city of Ephesus. Galatians, which is the city of Galatia. And there's many more, right? Paul of Tarsus, where's Tarsus? Antioch, Pisidia, all of these different names you might consider familiar through the Bible, but not through history, not to be able to place them in the world, in the ancient world. So a lot of these places are actually in Turkey, modern day Turkey. And some of them are in Greece. And then we know that Paul traveled as far as Rome. And we have little debates about whether he wanted to or eventually did travel to Tarshish. He wanted to go there. Where was that? Potentially Spain, right? So the whole Mediterranean area is the area under Roman control. But a large part of what happened in the early church was in what is considered today Lebanon, Syria, Turkey, and Greece and Rome or Italy. That whole area was part of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire went much further than that. The Roman Empire went all the way up to Great Britain, over to Spain, down into North Africa, into countries that you might recognize today, such as Tunisia, Algeria, Libya, Egypt, all the way around the Mediterranean, basically. And it also included the Slavic countries that you might consider the Balkan Peninsula today, which is Serbia, Croatia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, places like that, that we don't necessarily think about too much anymore. But also the Roman Empire stretched as far as the other side of Turkey, other side of the Black Sea, to include Armenia and Azerbaijan and Northern Iraq. So the Roman Empire was enormous, but it was basically culturally split in two by those people who spoke Latin and those people who spoke Greek as their kind of trade languages. The area of Italy and West usually spoke Latin and the area East, like Greece and East, usually spoke Greek. Now, Christianity got official protection from the Roman Empire in 313 AD. And that was the time that the Roman Empire was from Britain to Spain to Tunisia to Egypt and on up into Iraq and Turkey and Serbia and Croatia and that whole area. Constantine was emperor who adopted Christianity and he gave it official protection under the Roman Empire. That was what happened in 313 AD. And we mentioned this in the historical context episode uh, so if you haven't listened to that episode yet, definitely pause here, listen to that one first, and then come back and listen to this one. It'll help you a whole lot. So if you're like me, 
You're more familiar with the countries that were more Latin-speaking at the time of Constantine. The Spain and France and uh, Switzerland and Italy. These places are a little bit more familiar. Western Europe is usually a little bit more familiar to Americans and those people <laughs> that live in English-speaking areas. And Eastern Europe and the Middle East are a little bit more fuzzy. We're a little bit more fuzzy on the details with those places, right? So the places that spoke Latin, Italy and to the West, were a little bit more familiar. Those areas have Romance languages today, and Romance comes from the word for Rome. So there are languages that originated from Latin. Now the area of Greece and East that usually spoke Greek, these areas were a little bit more fuzzy on, and if you try and think about empires and countries in this area, you might come up blank. Or you might be able to think of Byzantine Empire and Ottoman Empire. Now, Ottomans aren't until much later than what we're talking about today. So a lot of it is the Byzantine Empire and Constantinople. Those are the two big words in there, the two big names. Before the Edict of Milan in 313 AD, there had been a lot of persecution for Christians. And this edict stopped that. And it didn't stop it permanently. There were emperors after Constantine that started up persecution again. But you could see that the Edict of Milan did a lot of good in preventing a lot of persecution of Christians. However, on the other side of the coin, a lot of people would say that it wasn't necessarily a very good thing because this is the point where politics started to get really involved in Christianity. And positions of power within the church became positions of power in the government. Bishops became political figures, not just church figures. And so there was a mixing of church and state that allowed for a lot of corruption. And a lot of, just a lot of other stuff came into the church with that protective act of Constantine. So this protection for Christians and this politicization of Christianity had a couple of effects. One of them was the start of monasticism, monks and nuns. One reason for the start of monasticism was to escape the corruption of the church through the state. People just started to think, I do not want any part of this organized religion anymore that has to do with, you know, the, the Roman Empire they're meddling where they do not belong. I do not like this corruption where people are looking to be bishops just so that they can get more money from the state. And they would go off and form communes and live together to avoid being involved in this corruption. So that's one effect that the Christianization of the Roman Empire had. But after Constantine, the Roman Empire often went back and forth between being ruled by several emperors and being unified under one emperor. And so at one point there was four different emperors and they had their own territories. And it was kind of like these vertical chunks of land that went through Europe and North Africa, where you could imagine that Britain, Spain, and Morocco were controlled by one guy. And then Germany, Italy, and Tunisia were controlled by another guy. So it, it kind of went like that, and then sometimes there was just two emperors, sometimes there was one emperor. It was not this one continuous empire that could be defined by one single border. 
that did not happen in the Roman Empire. It was all over the place. There was a lot of corruption and a lot of infighting in the Roman Empire all through its history. But one big event that happened was in 410 AD, so just about 100 years after Constantine, was that Rome was attacked by the Goths, which was a Germanic tribe from the north, from the area of Germany, but they originally came from Scandinavia. They came down and attacked Rome, and that's what we call the sacking of Rome by the Goths. And the whole western half of the Roman Empire just kind of got overrun by these different tribes that came in, defeated the Roman Empire, and lived there. They kind of just were like, this is a great place to be. We're going to hang out. And they moved in there. Did you know that different groups of Germanic tribes lived in North Africa and Western Europe for centuries? I didn't know this. So this is the kind of stuff I'm learning. So because there was so much invasion and war in the Western part of the empire, it took it many centuries before the Roman Empire actually revived itself from all of these Germanic invasions. The eastern part still had an emperor, and it lasted another 1,000 years as the eastern part of the Roman Empire. But the western half uh, was kind of broken and mangled for a long time, and it took a long time to recover. So what happened with this is that in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, it was the political system that was stronger and had more authority over the church. Does that make sense? The government was still in a good position to have authority. And so the church became a little more subservient to the government. So the government dictated to the church more than the church dictated to the government. So often political leaders would decide how churches would decide on theological issues and many other decisions like that. In the West, on the other hand, the church was still somewhat intact after the Germanic invasions, but the political system was pretty much destroyed. So often it was the religious system, the Pope and his bishops, that took control and provided some structure and authority for people to follow rather than any political system. This, in part, led to the Pope often having more power and authority than kings and emperors in the western part of the Roman Empire, even though it wasn't really the Roman Empire anymore. So you can already see how different political systems, or lack of them, were already leading to different styles of religious structures and what kind of authority they had. So how did we end up with a Catholic church and an Orthodox church? Well, like I said, there was a lot of cultural differences. We talked about in the west, there was the Latin-speaking area, and in the east, there was more Greek-speaking. So there was always ethnic and linguistic and geographic differences between the eastern and western halves of the Roman Empire. But they also had some major theological differences. And all through the history of the east and the west, there have been little differences, little problems of argument about different ways that issues were talked about. And if you remember your church history, if you studied this at all, there were different councils, the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon, and I'm probably going to pronounce some of these wrong, the Council of Ephesus and Constantinople, and another one of Constantinople, another one of Nicaea. And at these councils, 
basically what they were doing was trying to settle heresies within the church, kind of like, okay, this group of people has this belief. We need to define fully how we talk about, say, the Trinity or the humanity and divinity of Jesus so that when we know that there's heresy, we know how to express the correct belief and how to talk about these things so that we can all agree because we know that heresy is wrong, but we don't know how to explain it. So that's how often how councils were called, why they were called, and what they talked about was to talk about how to argue against heresy. So you probably have heard of the Council of Nicaea. That was the first council that was called, and that is where they came up with the Nicene Creed, the Council of Nicaea, Nicene Creed. And this creed was developed specifically to argue against or to kind of define the beliefs, the major beliefs in Christianity, so that it excluded this heresy. And so it's just a very general statement. I'm going to read part of it to you. It starts with, and I believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And so far it's like, okay, yeah, everybody agrees with that. And it goes on, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. And it goes on to talk about Jesus. And then it goes on to talk about the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. And then there's a phrase in here. It says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Okay? Now, this is a little bit of a technical argument, but originally the Nicene Creed did not include proceeds from the Father and the Son. And the Son was added on much later. And it was the Catholic Church, or the Western part of the Church, that added on that additional little phrase. And in Latin, it's one word, filioque. One word, filioque. And the Eastern bishops did not agree to this change. And it's just, it sounds really trite, right? It sounds really little. But it's not, because what happened was this council was not unanimously voting for this change. It was the Eastern bishops that said, no, that sounds wrong, and we'll tell you why, and they explained it. And the, the Western bishops were like, nope, we want it in there, and they just did it. And the Eastern bishops were really upset by this, and they saw it as the Western part of the church taking authority that was not for them to take, that it was for the council to have. So this clause is called the filioque clause. And I first learned about it when I took a class at um, college for my BA, and it was Russian Orthodoxy was the class. And so my teacher was a Russian Orthodox priest, great guy. I tried to find him online and I found a podcast by him. Like he's a, a guest speaker in the podcast and I really want to listen to it, but I still haven't yet. So his name is Father Simon. Um, he's a Russian Orthodox priest and I learned most of my Russian from him and his classes. And he's a great teacher. He's just a great guy. And I actually got to visit Father Simon's church as a part of this Russian Orthodoxy class. And he always held the class in the same time of the year. My college did trimesters so that each section, each trimester was only 10 weeks long instead of a 15 week semester, which is normal at a university. But he held it in the same trimester every year so that it would fall over Russian Orthodox Easter, 
so that he could have his students come and celebrate Orthodox Easter at his church. And he described it as being the most important holiday in Orthodoxy. And he wanted us to see first person why and how this celebration is treated. So I'm, I'm totally on a tangent right now. <laughs> but basically, Father Simon, a Russian Orthodox priest, is the first person that told me about this filioque clause. And he talked about it as this, and you could feel it when he talked about it, this sense of betrayal that the Western church made this decision and basically shunned their brethren and took authority away from them. And it to them, to the Eastern Orthodox church, it sounded heretical. It sounded just wrong. It sounded like it was making God and Jesus a Godhead, a doubled Godhead, with the Holy Spirit as their messenger boy. That's what the filioque clause did in the Eastern Orthodox people's eyes. So this wasn't a small deal to them. It was a really big deal. And it kind of was the nail in the coffin of unity in the church because there had been other problems and other discrepancies and other misunderstandings and arguments leading up to this point where the Western church and the Eastern church were not agreeing, were not seeing eye to eye, and they just couldn't get along kind of thing. So that is one of the major theological differences, though it doesn't sound like a big deal. It is to the Eastern Orthodox Church, and they were not willing to let it go. So the change to the Nicene Creed was one that the Eastern churches saw as a, a power move that was dangerous, and they said, no, we can't be a part of that. Okay, so here's a couple other main theological differences between the Western or Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox churches is papal supremacy. Is the Pope all-powerful within the church? The Eastern churches saw the Pope as primary, meaning the first bishop, but not supreme. He didn't have more authority than the other bishops. He was just the first bishop. He's the first of the bishops, but not greater than the bishops. The Eastern Orthodox also says that the church in, in general is infallible, but individuals are fallible, and that makes the Pope fallible as well. The Western Church, the Catholic Church, says that when it comes to matters of orthodoxy, of doctrine, the Pope is infallible. He does not make mistakes. So that was another big difference. Another theological difference is the Immaculate Conception. The Western Catholic Church believes that Mary was born without sin, and that was to ensure that Jesus would be born without sin. They believe that people are born with sin, and that if Mary was born with sin, she would automatically pass it along to Jesus, kind of physically. But the Eastern Church does not believe that Mary was exempt from sin. And they have a different understanding of sin and what we call sin nature. They believe that people have a propensity to sin and what probably Protestants call a sin nature. That meaning we're just automatically drawn to do bad things. That's the Eastern Church's belief system. I think it's a little bit more similar to Protestantism than to the Catholic Church. There are other issues that aren't as big of an issue but are still pretty important, such as the celibacy of the priesthood. The Western Church, the Catholic Church, 
does not allow priests to be married. They must remain celibate. Now, the Eastern Church, the Orthodox Church, does allow their priests to be married. In fact, Father Simon, my teacher, he was married, and I think he had three, two or three boys. Another one is communion. What kind of bread do you have in communion? The Catholic Church says that the communion bread must be without leaven, no yeast. The Eastern Church allows leaven. Not a big deal to us, maybe. To them, it is a big deal. But there is a lot that they do agree on, okay? Here's a little list of the things that the Western and Eastern churches agree on. Transubstantiation. That's believing that the communion bread and wine becomes the body and blood of Jesus during the Mass, during the service. Um, They share a lot of the beliefs about the Trinity. They both have the seven sacraments, baptism, confirmation, penance, communion, marriage, holy orders, and the anointing of the sick. And they both believe that salvation comes through faith and works, and the works start and end with the sacraments, unlike Protestants who believe in salvation through faith alone, okay? So when we talk about the Protestant Reformation, uh, salvation through faith alone, that is distinct from the Catholic and Orthodox belief that salvation is through faith and works. Next up, they both reject each other as the true church. No surprise. The Orthodox believe that they are the true church and that they have theological authority. They believe that they are free from heresy in a way that the Catholics are not, and so they believe that they are the true church. Catholics, after the 1960s and the Vatican Council, agreed that baptized Protestants and Orthodox were kind of like estranged Christians, that they were separated brethren, that we can accept that they are also Christians, but they're just not in the true church. All right, I'm going to go through another little list here of differences between the two that'll give you a feel for why they look different. Why does the Catholic Church look different from the Orthodox Church, even if they have the same roots? They came out of the same empire, just in different geographic areas and with a different language as their basis. In the West, monasteries, where monks and nuns lived, focused on working the land and prayer. Those were big focuses of monasteries starting in the Middle Ages. In the East, monks and monasteries focused on asceticism and purity and solitude. They wanted to keep pure. They wanted to be separate from corruption. So they really focused on basically beating their body down to deny their body all of those pleasures and the nastiness that that brings. So in the West, it's more about work and prayer. In the East, it's more about purity And that still goes today to a lesser degree, but it still goes today. In the West, the West believes it has apostolic succession, meaning they believe that Peter of the New Testament was the first bishop of Rome and that every pope after that has apostolic succession, meaning it was appointed by the previous pope and Peter must have appointed the first next guy. And so they believe they have a straight line of succession all the way to the modern day from Peter. So that's how they have their authority. In the East, they believe, like I said, they have 
theological or orthodox authority. They have the right beliefs that they are free from heresy. Now, the meanings of their names. Catholic means universal. And so the Catholic Church is saying we are the universal church. We are the church of Christianity. And we call them the Catholic Church, the Apostolic Church, the Western or Roman Catholic Church. In the East, Orthodox means right belief. And we often call them the Eastern Orthodox Church or just the Eastern Church. The leader of the Catholic Church is the Pope. He resides and leads from Rome and the Vatican City. He is the Bishop of Rome, and he is considered the bishop with the highest authority. It's a very different system of hierarchy in the East, and it has a lot of different names, so hang with me through here. The leader of the Orthodox Church is the Patriarch of Constantinople, which was the ancient headquarters of the Eastern Roman Empire. Now, we don't use the name Constantinople anymore, but if you remember the song, it's not Istanbul, it's Constantinople. Istanbul, which is in Turkey. So the Orthodox Church is headquartered out of Istanbul, Turkey. Even though there's not many Christians left in Turkey in modern times, the leader of the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Patriarch, is always out of Turkey, out of Constantinople, or now Istanbul. And the Orthodox Church has different districts or areas which are usually headquartered in one per country, not so in Turkey, but there are 15 what they call patriarchates. So a patriarch is in a patriarchate. There are ones in Jerusalem, Antioch, Constantinople, Moscow, Romania, Serbia, Bulgaria, Greece, and some other countries. A patriarch is the bishop type leader with the most authority. They're very similar to bishops, and they have the most authority in the Orthodox Church. And they have other levels of leadership with different names, just like the Catholic Church does, but they have interesting names. I really like this one, Metropolitan. (laughs) I've always thought that was an interesting name. Okay, how many members does each church have? The Catholic Church has about 1.2 billion members. 1.2 billion members. There are 8 billion people in the world today. That's estimated for this winter that will hit 8 billion in the world. So that means that at least one out of every eight people in the world is Catholic. Orthodox has over 220 million. And it's centered in Turkey. It's headquartered in Turkey. But now most of the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox people in the world are in Slavic countries like Serbia and Bulgaria Croatia, places like that. There are lots of differences that we could also talk about within the church, right? So within the Catholic church, there can be differences between churches and monks that are cultural, but there are also differences based on orders or religious institutions. You've heard of different monks and different monasteries like Franciscan and Trappist and Benedictine orders. But The differences in the Orthodox Church tend to be nationalistic. That means that each country tends to have its own flavor of Orthodoxy. And that's how we get things like Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, and Serbian Orthodox. It's much more based on country differences rather than different religious institutions. So if you go into an Orthodox Church in Greece, 
you'll see a lot of the same components, but the clothing looks different, the style of the art looks different, and their order of events, their liturgy might be different from a Russian Orthodox church. Whereas in the Catholic church, it tends to be a little bit more uniform across the board. So all of this, <laughs> we went through a very short history of the Middle Ages of 300 to 1000 AD, just to talk about the differences and how the Catholic and Orthodox churches came to be. It's all tied up with the Roman Empire and how basically Germanic invasions helped to split apart these two huge geographic areas. So there's politics involved, there's war involved, there's cultural and linguistic differences involved, and all of these had an effect on how the church developed through the Middle Ages, so that by the time of what we call the Great Schism in 1054 AD, and by this way, schism just means split. I only learned about it for the first time in Father Simon's Orthodoxy class. By the time they got to that point, there were already so many differences between the two branches of Christianity that it was ripe for a final split. Okay, but all of this is important to understand Christian history outside of just Protestantism. If you are Protestant, like I am, I'm Protestant, we tend to focus on our own history and brush aside the history of the church before the Protestant Reformation. However, these other groups are still part of Christianity, and it's really important that we don't pretend like they don't exist or refuse to have any association with them. Now, up next is the part that brings us back to the Bible, because next we're going to discuss how these groups and others use their Bibles and what kind of authority they see it to have. Because depending on which branch of Christianity you're a part of, kind of in part determines what parts of the Bible you focus on, which parts you emphasize, and how you interpret them. And also what kind of place you give the Bible in your life. So there's just a whole lot more we can talk about with these different branches of Christianity and how it affects what we do with the Bible and how we read it. So we're going to do that next. All right, guys, I hope you have a good day and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.